Hello, hello, welcome back to Loki's Librarian. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. Oh, I was gonna review four books this month. However, kitchen renovations with unexpected bonus rewiring of the kitchen has made my reading time a bit scant these last two weeks. So instead, I missed last week entirely, which was not intentional, but here we are. And I had to drop a book this month, but that's okay. That is what it is. You just kind of roll with the punches some days. But we are going to start this month with the Anti-Federalist Papers. The, oh, it's, it's the Anti-Federalist Papers and the Constitutional Convention Debates which was edited by Ralph Ketchum. Um, obviously none of this was written by him because these were things that were written 200 years ago, but he compiled it into this book and, and edited it, and so that's where we're at. I am gonna say that it, it uh, the, the delay in, in a book this month was not helped by my pick of this one. It was a little bit of a slog to get through. Politicians then as now enjoy hearing themselves talk and they were quite long worded. As my dad says, why use five words? 130 will do just as well about sums it up. And I uh, know I usually do a topical cocktail, but with all my mixers being boxed up somewhere due to the ongoing remodel, I am keeping it simple this week and going with my current favorite beer, Samuel Adams Cherry Wheat Ale. It's semi-topical. Uh, Samuel Adams is not just a marketing gimmick. He was the cousin of John Adams, second president of the United States, and Samuel Adams was initially an anti-federalist, so it is topical. He was swayed during the political debates following the Constitutional Convention into the rightness of the Federalist cause. So let's do this. At least according to Wikipedia, this is what happened. Wikipedia? I think that was on Wikipedia. So the first half of the book uh, are reports from the Constitutional Convention, specifically focusing on concerns that were raised by the Anti-Federalists who wanted to stick with the original Articles of Confederation. And these were well-known individuals in their day, uh, probably less so now, but they included Edwin Randolph, Eldridge Berry, George Mason, Governor Morris, uh, Governor Morris, excuse me, uh, Pennsylvania. This was probably the more interesting part of the book because it did show how the compromises of the final constitution were achieved, right? It wasn't just slapped together with everybody in agreement. There was quite a bit of debate going on to make this happen. Um, including arguments from James Madison. So he wasn't entirely for everything there, although he did ultimately pen the Constitution. Uh, but he was very active in the debates and uh, was swayed when somebody made a good argument as to how something should be. So, and, and that all, is always one of the things I admired about Madison was, was his ability to cede logic um, or concede to logic, I guess. And, and the arguments included the aforementioned Jerry, Randolph, Mason, and Morris, but also included James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin, Franklin. Exactly one point was made by George Washington, who was president present for every day of the conventional debates, but only spoke one time throughout the entire thing. And that was to argue that we should have more representatives than just one per 40,000. So thank you for that, George. Uh, 40,000 was the original amount before Washington spoke up. Uh, after he interjected his belief that the common man was not being represented enough, the number was one representative per, per 30,000, which we're going to come back to that one. I did get a new camera. Hopefully it doesn't blitz out on me. Now, Washington was not president yet, obviously. The reason he wasn't active during the convention that he was nominated to be president of the convention, so for him, it was his place to maintain order, not to interject his own opinion into the debates. So he, he was pretty good about that, kept his own opinion to himself. 
Now, however much of a slog this was to read through, it is important to understand the process was not rushed. The Anti-Federalists did try to sell that the whole process was rushed, but it really wasn't. Uh, the framers of the Constitution did carefully consider each of the points that appeared in the final document, including the number of representatives per population, what the executive power should be, veto, how to override that, the judiciary, when should citizenship be granted to immigrants, and how this should all be ratified. Now, it wasn't rushed. Three months is it, because that was almost daily work for like hours and hours a day. Um, so it, it wasn't that speedy. I was, but what made me pause here is I was just thinking of in, in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress where uh, Professor de la Paz is like, oh, it should take years to come up with a good constitution. He's probably right. Um, because if, if it is too fast, then it, loopholes are left. And the loopholes are what we're going to talk about next or in a little bit. So after all of these debates, they did have an initial draft of the Constitution ready by August 6th, 1787, and that's after about two and a half months. Uh, they initially met on May 25th, 1787, and they met basically every single day for those nine weeks, hashing out those important parts. Then spent another six weeks fine-tuning the Constitution, including the debate on whether the right to vote should be limited to landholders, which was ultimately decided no, because there would be far less landholders than there were people. And they wanted the people to be heard. And so, again, thank you for that. So after three months and three weeks, they finally had a working constitution to present to the individual 13 states for ratification. But it would not become the law of the land unless nine of those states ratified it. Uh, the convention decided this was the best possible compromise that they could come up with in securing a new nation. And on September 17, 1787, the constitution was signed by all but three of those who attended the convention. The three holdouts who refused to sign wanting to stick with the original Articles of Confederation were Edmund Randolph, Eldridge, Elbridge Jerry, and George Mason. Everybody else signed. Now, under the Articles of Confederation, which had been in effect since approximately 1781, what we had were 13 individual countries working together in a loose confederation. Uh, and yes, they styled themselves the United States of America, but it wasn't a nation. They were 13 individual nations working together. Um, it would be an analogous to modern-day European Union, where there are you know, dozens of countries working together to secure trade borders and allow their citizens free travel between the countries. So that's kind of what it was. And that's what we have here in the States. It's what we had back then, right? Prior to passage of the Constitution, yes, even prior to that, after that, we still had the right to travel between states and all of that. What the framers of the Constitution were looking to do was to create not 13 individual countries, which would ultimately fall to border and territorial disputes as the nation expanded westward, but rather one consolidated country with all the citizens pulling towards a common goal of nation building. Now, while the Constitution was signed on September 17th, it did not become the law of the land until nine of the existing states had ratified it, which New Hampshire became the ninth state on June 21st, 1788, making this the new nation of the North American continent. This did not mean the remaining four colonies had to ratify it. They, they could have chosen not to. As of June 21st, we had Delaware, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Georgia, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maryland, and South Carolina and New Hampshire, this was our new nation, those nine states. The remaining states, Virginia, New York, North Carolina, Rhode Island, did not have to ratify. They could have just said, nope, this isn't for us, we're going to stay as our own individual countries. But this put them in a tenuous position. When the nine making it their law, the other states are now theoretically surrounded by this foreign country, theoretically. Um, 
so yes, they could have remained independent, but had there been any, well, rather not had there, when the eventual trade wars and border disputes popped up, they would have been grossly outnumbered by those nine states that are now working as one nation together. And so it was basically a done deal. Once it became law by New Hampshire's ratification, it was essentially a done deal. Uh, because it was not practical to resist and insist on your own way when all of your neighbors have already decided to just, you know, go along with it. Should <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm up here recording. My husband is downstairs doing new electrical work for our kitchen. Yay. Thank you, honey. So there's going to be some background noise, and the dogs really want to go visit with his apprentice who is here helping. Following the signing on September 17th, the real work began. It took three months and three weeks to write. From September 17, 1787 until June 21st, 1788 is nine months and four days. So it took nine months for this to become the law of the land. And I don't remember seeing if there was a time limit they gave it to become the law of the land. Theoretically, it could have remained just a political debate for years, but it didn't. It took nine months. Uh, for almost that entire nine-month span, the papers throughout the colonies and newspapers were inundated with letters from both supporters and detractors of the new plan to form a United States. And historically, these became known as the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist Papers. Now, the Federalists are well known by now, and they are, they are taught largely in schools to some degree, or at least they were when, when I was in school. I can't let you out. Back in the 18th century, the Federalist Papers were published anonymously and collectively under the pseudonym of Publius. Publius. We now know that they were written collectively by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay. Now, the Anti-Federalists, we don't actually know who they were. I mean, we know who one of them was. That was Patrick Henry, because he published under his own name. He didn't give a shit who knew it, that he didn't approve of it. But the others were Brutus, Cato, John DeWitt, Sentinel, and the Federal Farmer. John DeWitt, interestingly enough, you, you might be like, hey, there's a real name. Yes, it is, but it's a real name of a, a Dutch farmer who had rebelled in Holland 100 years prior. 100 years? Might have been 150 years. So basically he took that name and used it as a pseudonym, whoever wrote under that name, um, because it was a well-known somebody who was rebelling against a federal authority. Now, the Anti-Federalist Papers were long. They are not, in fact, published in the entirety here. Um, the, the ones he picked were very carefully selected. Uh, Patrick Henry, to me, was the most readable. Um, all of them sounded important alarm bells, which didn't come true while the framers and the founders lived, but we are seeing the repercussions of their warnings now, 200 years after the fact. So what are some of these ringing alarm bells? Um, well, let's start with that 30,000 to 1 ratio of representatives. That, that worried them, mostly because there was nothing in the Constitution preventing the legislatures from capping the number of representatives in the House, and they were right. Uh, they were worried that the House would cap it at the original 65 members from the needed nine states to ratify. That would have given them about 65 members. In 1787, there were approximately 3 million people across the 13 colonies that, needed, that counted for representation, which would have theoretically capped representation at about 100 people in the House. Um, you will be pleased to know that in 1792, with the one of the earliest houses, they, they initially set it at 105, and then basically every 10 years with the census, they reapportioned those accordingly in line with the Constitution. So that, that actually was maintained fairly well until about 1929. Um, 
if you count our current population, which is 335,361,288, at a ratio of 1 to 30,000, we should have about 11,178 members in the House of Representatives. Um, 1929, federal law capped it at 435. Now, this is not a constitutional amendment. It's not a done deal. That number could actually change at any moment. Um, I don't imagine it will. I know I go into it here somewhere. You know what? I'll come back to it. I circle back to it in here somewhere. I circle back in it here somewhere. Anyways, can you imagine how wonderfully deadlocked Congress would be if there were 11,178 members waiting to voice their opinions on every single law? And it would be fabulous fucking chaos. It would be so mar magnificent, just wonderful. We should push to repeal that law and let the chaos happen. That's all I'm saying, you know? It's like remove the warning labels and let natural selection weed itself out. Kind of along those lines. Um, the Anti-Federalists were worried about underrepresentation at that 1 to 30,000 ratio. We are currently represented at approximately 1 to 770,972. So if you want to talk about being grossly upper underrepresented, there it is. Um, by keeping it capped at 435, they also gerrymander the ever-loving fuck out of all the congressional districts. It, it's absolutely absurd how our members are elected right now. Uh, these arguments, incidentally, included arguments against the notorious three-fifths rule, where for apportioning representatives, persons held in bondage, i.e. slaves, would only count for three out of five people for purposes of representation. This, too, did not go unremarked on. Uh, at least one of the letters decried this new nation and constitution, pointing out the irony of founding a nation on liberty while enshrining slavery in its founding documents. So they were well aware of the irony, um, the horrible, horrible irony of what was being proposed with this constitution. Now, when the constitution was written and passed all the way up until 1913, the House of Representatives were the only elected body directly elected by we the people. They would vote for the president, but the electors of the individual states would actually ballot for the president. And, and that's still true today. That, that system has stayed in place, despite people bitching and moaning about it. Um, the Senate was not elected in any metric by we the people. The way it was set up was the senators were the representatives of the state as a whole body politic. Accordingly, they were nominated and voted into office by the individual state legislatures. So for a modern example, the state of Nevada currently has 42 assemblymen, uh, assembly people, like whatever. If the 17th Amendment had not been passed in 1913, then those 42 assemblymen would have to pick who to send to D.C. as senator every six years, rather than we the people directly. This made it very hard to build a political dynasty as a senator. Right? I mean, can, can you imagine? We, we are currently, we have a Republican senator, uh, governor, all right, and the governor is the one who would actually have to sign off on it. So we have the Republican governor, Lombardo, right? Shit, who's the governor of Nevada? Who is the governor of Nevada? Did I vote for the governor of Nevada? Governor of Nevada. Joe Lombardo, I am correct. Okay, so, but we currently have a Democratic majority in our assembly. So the Democratic majority would have to pick somebody that our Republican governor would sign off on. I feel like we should go back to this. I feel like this might be a good way to get a body politic whole represented 
in D.C. instead of voting directly for them. But you couldn't build a political dynasty as a senator in that way, which is why I'm a fan of returning to this plan. But in the 18th century, the Anti-Federalists believed that the senators would be able to buy their way into the position, creating an aristocracy of the upper house. And that's, that's one that they got partially wrong, right? Because, yes, it's happened, but it didn't happen until 126 years later. Yeah, 126 years after it was passed. Um, yeah, 1788, 125 to 1913. So it did change, but for the first 100 years, senators were selected by the individual state legislatures. I firmly believe that if the senators were not directly elected by we the people, idiots like Barbara F. Walter, who think it's grossly unfair that all states have equal representation in the upper house, i.e. the Senate, might be a little better informed today. The Anti-Federalists firmly believe the Constitution was laying the groundwork for a petty tyrant in the presidency, especially with the inclusion of a standing army as part of the constitutional mandates. It was this fear of the standing army, incidentally, that got the Second Amendment included in the finished product. More than one of the Anti-Federalist papers demanded a list of amendments, including the right to keep and bear arms, specifying, literally spelling out, that this was not intended just for hunting. Although one actually did point out that, yes, we need to be able to hunt, so you can't take away our guns for that. But more than that, we need to be able to repel, repel tyrants literally spelled it out in the Anti-Federalist Papers, okay? Um, and, and, I mean, hell, the latest shit show out of New Mexico, it's kind of hard to argue that point, don't you think? I mean, the governor's not the president, except that she is the chief executive of the state of New Mexico, now standing in direct violation of the Constitution. So there's one point for the Federalists. She's literally in violation of federal law with what she's doing down there. I just, well, New Mexico was never on the list of places I wanted to live anyways. The concern with the standing army was cited directly as uh, Julius Caesar, who used the standing army in Rome to seize power, which eventually led to the downfall of Rome. And man, there are more than a few historians today who make the connection between the fall of Rome and America's own descent into debauchery and chaos. And maybe if we had more chaos in the House of Representatives, like, you know, the 11,178 representatives we should have, there, uh, there would be less chaos in the streets right now because they would be so busy arguing with themselves that we could all just live our lives. I mean, they'd all have to be paid then, which would mean one of two things. Either the bastards in office now would actually have to apportion out their own paychecks, which I guess that's probably never going to happen, or they would try to raise taxes, which might lead to another rebellion. I mean, Barbara F. Walters was a bit of an idiot, but she is right in one thing, in that civil wars are good for no one, so maybe that cap of 435 isn't such a bad idea. I'm uh, going to have to ponder that one a little bit to figure out what I want, which, which way my brain's going to leap on that one. Another problem is the fact that there is literally no verbiage in the Constitution against corruption, nothing to prevent them from taking bribes in the form of, uh, say, lobbyists or passing bills that allow their own stock portfolios to explode into absolutely insane profits, for example, just for example. 
And lobbyists were a thing in the 18th century. They knew about those. And uh, this was a massive mark against the proposed government. The fact that um, judges can be removed for high crimes and misdemeanors, but legislators cannot. Ain't no wonder corruption abounds in D.C. The power of taxation was a massive recurring theme. I think every single one of them, like eventually my eyes just started glassing over because every single one of them mentioned this power of taxation. Namely, that there were no limits on what could be taxed and no limits on how much they could tax, which obviously encourages more and more taxation on the part of our elected overlords, which again is a very hard point to argue 200 years later. And I don't believe a single one of the federal <laughs> papers didn't mention the taxation thing as a giant red flag against the passage of the new constitution. And then the last one that really point that really popped out at me was the general phrase to provide for the general welfare was argued as being too vague. Again, this is hard to argue with given the absolute shit show of legislation that's been handed down just in the last 21 years. 22 years. Yeah. Certainly, I mean, hell, it goes back as far as FDR, which was bizarrely supported by the courts in the 1940s, and hell, right after this Constitution was passed, you had the, the Alien and Sedition Act that, that John Adams signed off on and that the courts supported. So there were certainly flaws that were well known basically immediately. I, hell, everything that people today are screaming about as the government being doing this and XYZ is unconstitutional were the alarm bells that were being rung way back during the debates on the ratification. And the Federalists, you know, as I can tell, and I haven't read the Federalist Papers yet. I, I've read parts of them in college, but I couldn't say I've read them all. I'm going to learn more during this next book, although next, ne next week's book, I have it right here, is the U.S. Constitution annotated with, and so I'll learn more of them, but it's not comprehensive. I'll have to read the Federalist Papers individually, but lost my spot. The Federalists were cockeyed optimists, as near as I can tell. They were always looking at the best and saying, but no, that's not what's intended with the Constitution, and so those that elected would never do that because that's not what we intend with it. And the Anti-Federalists were diehard realists who said, look at your history. Those elected will totally do that, because it's literally always played out that way before. And I do understand why the Anti-Federalist Papers are important reading, why they should at least be skimmed through with the salient points discussed in relation to current events. But this book was a total slog to get through. I, I mean, I, I honestly probably could have had this read for last Sunday, but it was just such a drag to push through that I would literally rather be ripping out kitchen cabinets and replacing subflooring than reading through these deadly dull debates. They just, they were not exciting to read. I mean, like there's a reason I don't watch politics now. Uh, the art of boring the opposition to death is a time-tested method of ensuring no one is awake enough to oppose your point. It's kind of, kind of how I feel about it. And that's it for this week. Uh, next week, as I said, I'm doing the United States Constitution annotated with the Federalist Papers in modern English, so hopefully it won't be as slow to read through. I don't think it is. I've already started it. So I already have a few tags in there, and it's, it's already a little bit easier. And uh, I will see you guys next Sunday for that one. Wish me luck on my kitchen. Bye. <laughs>